Good morning. How are we? Good? Grab your Bible. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I had, had full intentions of moving on uh, off of the subject that has uh, held our attention for the past two weeks. In fact, today's original sermon was in final draft when uh, I was led to make a U-turn back to where we've been for the last couple of weeks. And it is this phrase of this verse that stopped me in my tracks and convinced me to impose upon you for one more week with this topic. Second Corinthians five, verse 14. Here's the phrase, first seven words, pregnant with meaning for the love of Christ, Paul says constrains me. Let's pray. Father, we we've gathered here in your presence and we've we've given you our praise. Lord, as we sit at your feet, as we sit to hear from your word, would you speak directly to our spirits? Holy Spirit, Do your work in this place, challenging and encouraging and bringing rest and bringing peace, bringing joy, bringing that which only you know needs brought. God, join us as we examine your word and and think deeper, think harder about Even just a few words. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen. For the love of Christ, Paul says, constrains us. It's an odd, strong word. It's also translated in some of your Bibles, perhaps compels. Some of you may have a translation that says controls. All similar words. All would work. All have different slights of meaning. It's a strong word, even in the English, isn't it? To be constrained by something. In the Greek, it's even more evident, the strength. The the word is even more tenacious. It's even more powerful in the original language. Uh, As the Greek often does, it paints pictures that the English language doesn't have the words to do. Let me give you, as we start here, uh, I want to give you some other uses of this word in different passages I'm actually going to pull three, all from Luke. So let's make it easy for you. Go to Luke chapter 8. I want you to see these. Three other times that this word translated here, constrained or compelled or controls, is used. Oftentimes when you look at places in the New Testament where the same word is used, you gain a broader understanding of what that word means. Again, in the Greek, words were pictures. Words were stories. And so we need to understand what story What picture Paul intends to paint by using, by choosing this word. And beyond that, what picture the Holy Spirit, divinely inspiring this word, chooses to paint for us using this unique word. It's used many other times in Scripture. Let me give you three. Luke 8, verse 37. Luke 8, verse 37. You know the context. If you look back around those verses, Luke 8, 37, it's in the context of. Of the 
Gerasene demoniac where Jesus sends out the demon that has possessed this man and he sends it into swine and the swine take off and they run down the hill and they they kill themselves. Right. And at the power of this miracle, uh, the people who witnessed it. Well, they were they were a little bothered. Look at what it says here. Luke eight thirty seven. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him, that's Jesus, that's who they're asking, asked him, capital H, to leave them. Please, please just get away from us. It's interesting. For they were, here's why, they were gripped with great fear. So he got into the boat, Jesus, and he returned to where he was. Do you you notice the word? Can you guess which word is our word constrained, controls? Compels and they were gripped. They were constrained with fear. Fear grabs you and its grip is inescapable, isn't it? Uh, I'll I'll confess to you. uh, I kind of like scary movies and stuff. My wife's always giving me a hard time and she's praying for me that my spirituality would progress a little bit. That there's probably some conviction that needs to take place. But like as a kid, like I liked going to like the haunted houses and I liked going on like the spooky trail things around Halloween and just getting freaked out. I don't know why. Just something about that. Just, you know, and I love watching the movies. I like, you know, shows like scare taxis and stuff where they just jump out and scare people. It's hilarious to me. If my mom's listening to this right now, she should be amening because uh, I still, I don't know what it is, but I still like to just, as a grown man, hide around corners, jump out and scare her when she's around. She said, I've done it my whole life. I just, I just enjoy that sort of thing. But there's something, if, if you're anything like me, or you've been in a moment where you've been, you've been afraid, you've been scared, scared to death. There's something about that moment, right? You understand now that it, it just grips you. It grabs you. I mean, it's almost like you cannot control it, right? And that's the that's that's a part of the picture of the word that Paul uses here. It's the same word used to express the power of fear over a person. That's the same word used by Paul to explain that the love of Christ has some sort of gripping, inescapable power over him. Right? It's like the grip of fear. Look at the next one. Just a few verses later. Luke 8:45. You remember this story? Jesus is going through a large crowd and the lady reaches out and she needs healing, but she she can't make her way to him. But she just gets the hem of his outer garment. Right. She just is able to touch him. He keeps going. He he doesn't feel the touch, but he says later that he senses that some power has left him and he stops and he's asking the disciples, like, who was that that touched me? She got healed just by touching him. And he's like, who was that that touched me? And now here's the verse, Luke 8, 45. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, like the disciples, like, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Guess which word? Pressing in on you. It's, here's the picture. Here, here's, here's the word in picture form. Jesus is in this crowd. Like it's, this, it's this mob scene. Right. And Jesus is wondering was, who was it that touched me? That's what he's trying to figure out. And and the guys are like, it was none of us. And Peter's like, listen, we got to go because they're just pressing in too hard to the point where we're just getting carried along here. 
We can't do anything about it. It's, it's almost a picture of a dangerous situation. You ever been in like a mob scene? You ever been in a crowd that you couldn't like really control where it was going or where you would go? You just kind of had to go with the flow because either that or you were going to get stomped and trampled. Yeah. The mass and momentum of the great thing, the crowd, the mass and momentum of the great thing carries him along onward, forward, lifting him as if off of his feet. That's Paul. It's the same word. It, this great thing, this, this, this massive, momentous thing that is lifting him, carrying him, moving him forward and onward. It, and let's ask what it is. What is that great thing? It is the love of Christ. That great thing. Okay? That great thing, it, it gets around it gets around Paul's soul. It gets around our soul. The love of Christ constrains us. It gets around us. And we're moving with it. It pushes us onward, forward. Let me give you another one. Luke 22. Move on a few pages. Luke 22, verse 63. This is at the arrest of Christ. Imagine this picture, if you will. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? Because he couldn't see, because he was blindfolded. And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Can you pick out the word? Can you pick out the word in verse 33? Now, the men who were constraining Jesus. What does this look like to be a prisoner in the grip of Roman soldiers? He was under their arrest. They would not physically let him go. This, this, even this, even this is the picture Paul paints using this same word. The love of Christ has arrested him. It has him in its hold and it, it will not relent. He is prisoner to it. Isn't that good? He's prisoner to it. For the love of Christ grips Paul entirely like horrific fear does a man. It moves him forward like the irresistible force of a large crowd. And it lays hold of him as if to arrest his entire person. That, that's the word. That's what he means to display when he says that the love of Christ constrains me. The old guys, you know, the old guys, the old preachers and, and writers and theologians, uh, they were so much better at the art of using words and even at the art of explaining in pictures and in illustration what words convey. Spurgeon was tremendous at this. He points out a couple more pictures that this word constrains paints. Okay. He says, number one, and I think, I think rightly, he notes that it could be well translated also restrains, not just constrains. That the love of Christ restrains us. Here's what he meant. The love of Christ, he says, restrains true believers from self-seeking and forbids them to pursue any objective but the highest. 
You get the idea of restraints? It keeps us from ourselves, perhaps. Keeps us from what we might do all on our own. It, it restrains us in that way. Number two, he also rightly notes that the word signifies the idea of being compressed. And that's, a, that's an interesting image, right? It's the idea of being compressed. The idea of all one's energies being used and pressed into one direction, channeled for one purpose. Now, that's a good, that's a good picture. Listen how he illustrates both of these. When a flood of water is spread over an expanse of meadowland, okay, and stands in shallow pools. So you get the picture? You got water all over this meadowland, and it's just standing water. That means it's not moving water. That's what he means by it stands in pools. Men restrain it by damming it up. You restrain it by damming it up. And they constrain it to keep to one channel by banking it in. They restrain it and they constrain it. They compress it by banking it in. Thus compressed, check this out, it becomes a stream then, right? You take all those stagnant, standing pools of water, you restrain them, you compress them. Now what happens? It becomes a stream and moves with force in one direction, growing all the while it develops into a river. And this done, it still increases and stays not till it flows with mighty flood into the great sea. Now he applies it to Paul's words. The love of Christ has pressed Paul's energies into one force, turned them into one channel, and then driven them forward with a wonderful force until he and his fellows had become a mighty power for good, energetic, and always active. The love of Christ constrains me. The word is... Pregnant with meaning. Now to say that the uh, to say that uh, love does such a thing isn't foreign to us, is it? I mean, you get that. To say that love has such power, that's understandable, right? From a, even a human perspective, we get glimpses of that very truth. Think about the power love has over you. Think about the love you have for your spouse or the love you have for your kids. When love gets its hold on you, you do crazy stuff, don't you? I mean, you make, you make fools of ourselves, don't we? We risk our life when love gets its grip on us, don't we? We, we spend all of our money when love gets a hold of us. Amen? The love of Christ is really, for Paul, the supreme example of that truth. Listen, now, now that you understand, okay, that um, what this love is meant to cause, it's meant to cause this, this act of constraining, controlling, compelling, all right? Well, now that we understand that a little bit better, um, let's ask another question. What... What actually is this love of Christ? All right. We get now better an understanding of what it means to be constrained by it. What is this love of Christ itself that does that causes this great constraining? All right. It's one of two things. Maybe. Is it Paul's love for Christ? Or is it Christ's love for Paul? 
that constrains him. Fair question, right? Go back to the passage. Second Corinthians 514. Read about it with, with this in mind, that it's Paul's love for Christ. For the love of Christ, like my love for Christ, controls us. Our love for Christ controls us. It could be, right? Is that how you thought of it when you read it? Is that, that what came to mind? When you saw the words, for the love of Christ, like for my love of Christ, it, contro- it controls, it compels me, it constrains me. Or did you think, did you think the other? For the love of Christ, his love for me constrains me. I mean, which came to mind? It's an interesting question. Uh, I'd love to know which came to your mind. In the Greek, it's the genitive form that is used here. And uh, interestingly enough, it could be translated either in the objective sense or in the subjective sense. Here's what it means. It could be translated either way. Objectively, it could be translated rightly so. Our love for Christ. It could mean our love for Christ. Or subjectively so, it could mean Christ's love for us. Right? Now hold on that for a moment. In the Greek, it could be translated either way. You, you, you take your pick when it comes to the grammar. So here then is the question. What was it Paul's own love for Christ that constrained him or the love of Christ for Paul that constrained Paul? I, I think... I think the context, all right, and we'll read more of that in a second, the context and just good theology argues for the latter, that it's the love of Christ, Christ's love for Paul that has constrained him, that has caused him to be and do what he's doing with his life, okay? But I stumbled upon a, uh, a 1915 sermon on the verse by a guy named John Henry Jowett, and I can't say it any better than he did, so I'm not going to try. That's often the case, so I'm just going to read it to you. Here's what he said about about that very question. Did Paul's love for his great savior hold him or did the love of the great savior hold him in its grip? Surely we cannot divide the two. Surely the love is inclusive of both. Now think about this. Christ's love for him awakened his love for Christ. The divine fire kindled the flame of sacred love on the altar of his heart. The divine love came to him like a breath of the spring. There was a gracious quickening in the birth of a spiritual beauty. And there ascended to the Lord the fragrant incense of a responsive love. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And therefore, I think we cannot rightly divide the two. But even thus, while I think of this constraining love as a mingled of the two loves, yet in the mingling, it was the Savior's love that was altogether preeminent. The initial love, the love that generated love, the love that ministered when there was only the unlovely to love, the love that was loving when there was no response, loving when apparently there was nothing to love. Which do you think? Which do you think? To be certain, the love of Christ for us is preeminent. It is the prime mover, you might say. It is the cause. You can't have our great love without his first for us. But I think, I think perhaps the beauty of this passage, in great part, the fact that the words convey that both Christ's love and Paul's love have something to do with this constraining effect. 
either seems to be sufficient for the result. Either seems to be sufficient to cause the constraining. I think it's intentional. In fact, you know, as I thought about it, this may be the very, uh, the very, very central point of the, this week and the last two weeks. Okay? Namely, that the life-changing love we have for Christ is indeed inseparable from the love Christ had for us. Put another way, if you get the love that Christ had for you, if you get it, then your love for him could just as well be, it could just as well be the thing that is said to constrain you. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Here's why. Because the one who gets the love of Christ, the one who gets the love that Christ had for us, and in context, I want you to see what this love is. Here's what Paul thinks the love of Christ is. He unfolds this even more. Look at the rest of the verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ constrains us. Here's why. Now he tells you how this happens. He defines what, in his mind, the love of Christ is. If he had to point it out, this is what he says. Having concluded this. That, that literally is the word that uh, could be translated sifted. That having, having examined it thoroughly, having shaken it all out, all right, this isn't just, you know, Paul's glance at the, at the topic. He says, having carefully thought this through, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is the love of Christ? It is that he He died and rose on our behalf. That is the great gripping, moving, arresting image. It is the thing that constrains Paul. That he he would do such a thing, that he would live, that he would die, that he would rise again. And he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, on our behalf. That's what grips the Apostle Paul. The one who gets the love of Christ, that love of Christ. If you get that, your own love will be sufficient for the desired constraining effect. And so it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't matter. You get the love of Christ, then you can translate this either way, because either has the same effect. Because the one who understands clearly the death and the resurrection of Christ And understands that in the sense that it is love for us. It changes everything. It is is sufficient for the constraining that Paul speaks of. One last point. One last point. Nothing about this concept of being constrained should lead us to believe that he was somehow forced. Or was under unwanted compulsion. It wasn't in bondage, so to say, okay? It wasn't a negative thing. But then you say, well, every picture that you've already painted for us were really kind of negative pictures, right? In the grip of fear, carried along by a, by a, by a mob, uh, being held in the grip of arresting officers. Those are all kind of negative sort of things. They, they all kind of paint the picture of being out of control, 
Like that I don't have a choice in the matter. And while that is true, there's a slight different angle on this that I think is worth noting here. Let me read to you what another commentator said. The kind of constraint spoken of here implies no compulsion and involves no bondage. It is the highest order of freedom, in fact, for when a man does exactly what he likes to do, if he wants to express the enthusiastic joy and delight with which he follows his pursuit, he generally uses language similar to that of our text. For example, quote, I'm engrossed in my favorite study, one might say. It quite enthralls me. I can't resist its charms. It holds me beneath its spell. Is the man any less free who says this? If a man gives himself up to some great love or to some other pursuit, though he is perfectly free to leave it whenever he likes, he will commonly declare that he cannot leave it. Makes sense. It has such a hold upon him that he he addicts himself to it. You must not think, therefore, that when we speak of being under constraint from the love of Christ, we mean by it that we have ceased to exercise our wills or to be voluntarily agents in his service. Far from it. In fact, we acknowledge that we are never so free and we are under than when we are under bonds to Christ. No, our God does not constrain us by physical force. His cords are those of what? Love. And his bands are those of a God-man. The constraint is that which we are glad to feel. We give a full assent to its pressure. And therein, and therein lies the power. We rejoice to admit that the love of Christ constrains us. We only wish the constraint would increase every day. You get this, right? I mean... There's nothing in this that goes against that goes against what Paul desires. It has become his desire. If I were to say to you that I am completely given to my wife and children, I mean that I'm wrapped, right? That I'm completely theirs. That I I, I live in a sense for them. That I would give up everything for them. It tells you something. About my love for them, doesn't it? Kimberly and I have, uh, we've talked on several occasions and joked about how our love, this strange love we have for our children, even outweighs our marital affections, right? Somehow, like we just, we can't explain how much we love those two little brats. Even when they wake up at 5.45 in the morning. If I told you, guys, if I told you what the love for my children would constrain me possibly, potentially to do, it would scare you. Dad, you know what I mean? It would, it would scare you. It is crazy. Crazy love. Someone should write a book by that title. It's all natural. There's nothing forced. It's based on who they are. They're my kids. For Paul, his love was based on who God is. 
Who was he? He was a crucified and risen Savior. He died and rose again on our behalf. That is the mass of the great love of Christ that grips Paul, moves him along, sweeps him off of his feet, arrests his soul to where from the outside it would seem like he can't do anything other than whatever the will of his Savior desires. Is that true for you? Does the love of Christ constrain you in that way? I want to end with a question. It's the same question that Jawit ended his sermon in 1915 with. It's a fill in the blank. Make it easy on you. Only you can answer it, though. Here it is. The love of Christ constrains you to blank. It's a fair question, right? I mean, we know what the love of God constrained Paul to do. He went to his death. And sometimes perhaps we get an idea that the apostles or the disciples were the elite. And what what was expected of them is not expected of us. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. In fact, it may be that our lives are to outrun those of the apostles and disciples. Maybe with the added benefit of their lives, we should surpass them in our righteousness, our commitment, in our faithfulness, in our joy. So you ask yourself that question. The love of Christ constrains me to the point that I would... What is it? And maybe don't ask yourself the question. Maybe ask, ask God what He wants that blank to say. The love of God constrains me Let me read you the last few verses of this passage. I think it's important. And if you're wondering how this ties into our evangelism point, check this out. Verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is this is this is what comes right after. For the love of Christ constrains me, this is what comes after. This is how he closes up this chapter. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That was him saving us, right? That's what that reconciling means. It was his evangelizing of us, okay? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us. Check this out. What did he give us? The what? What does it say? The ministry of what? Reconciliation. That's evangelism. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what we're supposed to be telling them. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he committed to who? Us. The word of reconciliation. Now he's passed that duty to us. Therefore, we are, what does it say? Ambassadors for Christ. As though... What a, what a phrase this is. As though God were making an appeal through us. Oh, Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see the heart of the one whose heart has been gripped by the love of God? The heart of the one who's been gripped by the love of God will beg 
that the least of these come to a God is made a way for reconciliation. He made him who knew no sin, sin. He made him, that's Jesus, God, the Father, made Jesus who knew no sin to be what? Sin on our behalf. What a great motivator. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you constrained, believer? Are you constrained? Let's pray. Father, unfold for us what it is, what this great love of God actually is. We know, as Paul said, it is that you died and, and you rose again. And not that you just did those things, but you did them for us. That, that is enough. That, that is a sufficient definition of the love of Christ to constrain us all, to grip us all, to claim all of our lives, to arrest our spirits, to arrest our hearts, to arrest our minds, to hold us without escape. And Father, we, we are constrained willingly for that type of love. For that type of love, Father, we chain ourselves to you. We handcuff ourselves to the cross.